Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, and they do it with mirrors. Where Miss Marple senses danger when she visits a friend living in a Victorian mansion, which doubles as a rehab center for delinquents. Her fears are confirmed when a youth fires a revolver at an administrator. Neither is injured, but a mysterious visitor is less fortunate, shot dead simultaneously in another part of the building. Pure coincidence? Miss Marple thinks not. This will be a five-part series, so sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. to Stony Gates because I had been told there was something threatening my old school friend Carrie Louise. Her stepson, Christian Gulbranson, had warned her husband that someone was trying to poison her, and Gulbranson had been shot dead. And now she had been sent a box of chocolates containing arsenic. We present June Whitfield as Miss Marple in Agatha Christie's They Do It With Mirrors. Now the fact that someone was trying to murder Carrie Louise was out in the open, the jealousies and rivalries within her family could no longer be kept hidden. I took my knitting out onto the terrace and just happened to overhear Gina Hudd and Stephen Resterick. It's quite extraordinary the way news gets round this place. Even the boys in the college have got to hear about Grandam and the chocolates. How'd you know that? Ernie Gregg told me. He was helping me paint the back cloth. Oh, the kid who made a jolly good stab at fest day when we were doing Twelfth Night. That's the one. And they all know about the card from Alex with the chocolates. But Grandam hasn't got an enemy in the world. Who could possibly want to get rid of her? Well... One person certainly springs to mind. I suppose you mean Wally. He may not care for her very much, but what conceivable reason could he have for killing her? There's a great deal of money at stake, my pet. And perhaps he wants to be certain of getting his hands on your grandfather's inheritance while he's still married to you. What do you mean, still married? Oh, you know very well what I mean, Gina. Your marriage is on the rocks. You don't belong together anymore. And the sooner you both split up, the happier everyone will be. I've no idea what Wally feels about our marriage. I've no idea what he feels about anything anymore. He hardly speaks to me. He's become a completely different person since we came here. Why do people have to change, Stephen? Do I change? No. You're always exactly the same. Do you remember the way I always used to tag round after you when we were kids? (laughs) And I thought you were a most frightful little nuisance. Well, the tables are turned now, aren't they? What do you mean by that? You've got me exactly where you want me, haven't you, Gina? And with that, he turned and walked back towards the house, leaving Gina with a slightly bemused smile on her face. A few minutes later, she was joined by Alex. Have you heard what that little wretch Ernie Gregg is telling everyone now? 
that he got out of college last night and went wandering around the grounds and that he could tell the police a thing or two about the murder if they cared to ask him. I don't believe a word of it. He's just trying to make himself seem important. He'd say anything to draw attention to himself. Poor Ernie. He's quite a sweet kid, really. And has he joined the list of your admirers? Go easy. Ernie's only 16. I don't see how that disqualifies him. You're managing us all very well at the moment, aren't you? Me and my dear little brother and that large, dull husband of yours. I've no idea what you're talking about. Oh, yes, you have. Little Ernie's nursing an adolescent crush. Edgar Lawson's biting his lip with frustrated passion. Stephen's in love with you. I'm in love with you. And even poor Wally's in love with you. What more could a woman want? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're honest about it. So, what are you going to do? Are you going to marry Stephen, or are you going to marry me? Aren't you forgetting that I'm still married to Wally? Temporarily. Every woman's allowed to make one mistake matrimonially, but there's no need to get stuck with it. Having tried the show out in the provinces, the time has come to bring it into the West End. And you're the West End? Undoubtedly. Alex. Gina! You abandoned, beastly little slut! I always knew you were a bad lot. And you're not only an adulteress, you're a murderess into the bargain. Don't be ridiculous! You don't even know who your mother was or where she came from. A criminal's child or a prostitute's child, most likely. That's the sort of person they would have adopted. They might have remembered that bad blood will tell. You've gone out of your mind! Someone tried to poison mother, and who's the most likely person to do that? Who comes into an enormous fortune if mother dies? You do, Gina. And you may be sure the police haven't forgotten the fact. <clears throat> Lucky you haven't got a knife in your stocking, darling. The virtuous Mrs. Street might have got to know something about murder firsthand. How dare she say I tried to poison Grandon? Well, darling, somebody did. And the wretched Mildred is quite right. From the motive point of view, you're well in the picture, aren't you? Do the police think that? Oh, they keep their thoughts to themselves. But don't underestimate them, Gina. They're not fools. I sat watching the sun setting slowly beyond the lake and then went back into the great hall. Alex was standing by the fireplace with his hand flung out in a somewhat flamboyant gesture. Ah, do come in, Miss Marple. I'm just going over in my mind the events of last night. Are you trying to reconstruct the crime? No, not exactly. I was looking at the whole thing from an entirely different point of view. I was thinking of this place in terms of the theatre, as a sort of stage set. Uh, not my own idea. The inspector gave it to me. Inspector Curry? I was trying to convince him about why I was so late getting to the hall, you know, watching the effect of my headlamps on the fog and thinking of it as a theatre effect. He said a stage set was real in itself. It was made of canvas and wood, but the illusion was in the eye of the beholder. What a very penetrating remark. Isn't it? Unfortunately, I, I didn't appreciate it much at the time, since he was doing his best to scare the hell out of me by demonstrating how little time it took to get from the spot where I had stopped the car to the side door of Stony Gates and back. And how long did it take? Two minutes and 42 seconds. Mind you, the poor constable who tried it was puffing like a steam engine by the time he got back. But uh, I'd better be off. I want to do some work in the theatre, provided I can get one of the kids to give me a hand. Au revoir, Miss Marple. Au revoir. What a very curious idea of the inspectors. That illusion is in the eye of the beholder. What is the phrase about conjurers? 
They do it with mirrors. That's it. They do it with mirrors. And what else did Mr. Resterick say? Oh, what was it? Something about the constable being out of breath. Wally? Wally, what on earth are you doing here? I thought you'd rather drop dead than be seen anywhere near the theatre. I... Uh, I I was looking for you as it happens, Gina. Can we go outside for a minute? I want to talk to you, away from all the others. What is it, Wally? You're looking terribly serious. How long do you think it will be before this murder business is cleared up? Well, the inquest's tomorrow. It'll be adjourned for a fortnight or something like that. At least that's what Inspector Curry gave us to understand. A fortnight, say three weeks perhaps, and after that we're free. Free? I'm going back to the States. But I just can't drop everything like that. I couldn't leave Grandam, not while everything's so uncertain. And there are two new productions I'm working on in the theatre. I didn't say we, Gina. I said I was going. Do you mean you don't want me to go with you? No, I, I didn't say that. You don't care whether I come or not, is that it? It's no good kidding ourselves, Gina. Our marriage is in trouble. It has been ever since we came to this place. I just don't belong here. And your family have made no secret of the fact that they don't think much of me. That's not fair. Lewis has tried time and time again to get you interested in the work he's doing here. Look, Gina, I'm simply not cut out to be a teacher or a psychiatrist. I'm a simple guy. I work with my hands. And all I want is to live in my own country, doing the kind of job I know how to do. Like running a garage. And what's wrong with that? But if that isn't the kind of life you want, then maybe you'd better cut free of me so that you can start again. If you'd rather be with Steve or Alex, it's your choice. But I'm going home. You do realize that you're top suspect for Uncle Christian's murder? They'll need some evidence first. I'm frightened for you, Wally. I've been frightened all along. I don't like the way that inspector looks at you. Like a cat waiting to pounce on a mouse. I went out into the night and stood at the place where the inspector had made his experiment over how long it might have taken Alex Resterick to get to the house from his car. I felt that at last I was drawing close to the way in which the murder had been worked. You'll get a chill, Miss Marple, standing about in this cold wind. I was thinking about conjuring tricks. So difficult when you're watching them to see how they're done, and yet so absurdly simple when they're explained to you. Did you ever see the lady sworn in half? Such a thrilling trick, and I could never work out how they did it. But the other day there was an article in a newspaper giving the whole thing away. I don't really think journalists should be allowed to do that, do you? Apparently, it's not one girl, but two. The head of one and the feet of the other. And the other way round would work equally well, wouldn't it? Are you sure you're feeling all right, Miss Marple? Let's go in, shall we? It's all a matter of making up your mind which is reality and which is illusion. Is that Edgar Lawson going up to the house? Yes. Yes, I think so. <laughs> of course. How stupid of me. What is it? I have remembered now who he reminds me of. 
a young man in St. Mary Mead called Leonard Wiley. His father was a dentist, but he got old and short-sighted, and so people started to go to his son. But the old man was very miserable, and said he was no good for anything anymore, and so Leonard, who was very soft-hearted and rather foolish, began to pretend to drink more than he should. He always smelled of whiskey, and he used to be rather fuddled when his patients came in. His idea was they'd go back to his father again. And did they? Oh, of course not. They went to Mr. Riley in the next village. Poor Leonard. Everyone could see he was play-acting. He overdid everything. Miss Marple, I really must insist that we go in. It's biting cold, and forgive me, you're not quite talking sense. I can't make head nor tail of what you're going on about. Jolly, I've been looking for you everywhere. Miss Marple and I have been out on the terrace. Is something the matter, Mr. Serico? Annie Gregg was missing from roll call tonight. Do you think he's run away? We don't know. They're searching everywhere for him. He's been going around telling everybody he knows something about the murder of Uncle Christian. Oh, Gina, that's nonsense, of course. I only hope that someone hasn't taken him too seriously. The poor, foolish boy. What's up? Why are you standing around with such long faces? Ernie Gregg's gone missing. Missing? Well, when last I saw him, he was going to help Alex in the theatre. When was this, Tim? Oh, it was over an hour ago. They found them. It's horrible. Horrible. What do you mean, found them? Ernie Gregg and Alex Resterick. Their heads were crushed in. Oh. They were working on the stage. The big counterweight must have fallen down on them from the flies. They were killed instantly. I've brought you a bowl of strong soup, Carrie Louise. Please drink it. Oh, thank you, Jay. First Christian and now Alex. And poor silly little Ernie. Do you do you think the boy really knew anything? I doubt it. He was just telling lies to make himself look important. And so he was killed. And what about Alex? Was that pure accident, do you think? Because he was standing next to Ernie? No, I don't think so. I was talking to him earlier this afternoon in the Great Hall. He'd been making an attempt to reconstruct the crime. Hmm. Alex was always very perceptive. He saw things others did not see. And I suspect the murderer observed what he was doing and feared he was getting much too close to the truth, which he was. How much do you know, Jane? I can't be quite sure. I think you are sure. Yes, I believe I am. What do you want me to do? It's in your hands, Jane. You will do whatever you think is right. Yes, Miss Marple, what is it? I need to talk to you. Could we go into the Great Hall? I should wish, but surely we could talk more privately in here. It is not privacy we need, Inspector. I want to show you something, something that Alex Resterick made me see. Oh, well. What exactly did he show you, Miss Marple? Well, he, he didn't show me anything, not directly. 
It's all a question of conjuring tricks, you see, of directing the attention of the audience the wrong way. They do it with mirrors, if you understand me. I don't understand you at all. What exactly are you getting at? Would you come and stand here, Inspector? I want you to think of this place as a stage set, as it was at the time Christian Gulbranson was killed. You are here, in the audience, looking at the people on the stage. The audience? Mrs. Seracold and myself, and Mildred Street, and Gina and Stephen. And just as on the stage, there are entrances and exits, and the characters go out to different places. Only when you are in the audience, you don't realise where they are really going to. You mean that they go out to the to the wings, to backstage? Yes, exactly. Now, think of this as a play, and the scene is the Great Hall of Stony Gates, with the piano on the left and the fireplace centre stage, and the door to Mr. Seracold's study on the right. Yes. But what is backstage? What is behind all that? The corridor with the dining room and Christian Gulbranson's room opening off it. And beyond that... The terrace. The terrace. And a lot of windows opening onto it from the study and the dining room. And the side door by the room where Gulbranson was writing his letter. And you see, that is how the trick was done. It was the conjuring trick of the Lady Sawn in Half that made me think of it. The Lady Sawn in Half? Yes, only not one lady, but two. And then I thought it could also be the other way round. Two people could really be one person. Two people, only one? Oh, yes, but only for a short time. How long did your constable take to run from where Alex Resterick stopped his car in the drive to the house and back again? Two minutes and 42 seconds. But this was a much shorter distance. It could be done in well under two minutes. What could be done? The conjuring trick. Not two people, but one person there in the study. Here in the auditorium, we're only looking at the visible part of it, the study door. But behind the scenes is the study window, which opens onto the terrace. So easy to open it, run along the terrace. And Alex Restrick said he heard running footsteps. And then go in by the side door, shoot Christian Gilbranson at his desk and then run back. And all the time, the other person in the study does both of the voices so that we're all quite certain that there are two people in there. And so there were, for the most part. But not for those crucial two minutes. You mean that it was Edgar Lawson who ran along the terrace and shot Gulbranson? Edgar Lawson, who, who was poisoning Mrs. Serica? Oh, no, Inspector. You see, no one has been poisoning Mrs. Seracold. That is where the misdirection comes in. Someone very cleverly made use of the fact that Mrs. Seracold's sufferings from arthritis were not unlike the symptoms of arsenic poisoning. It's the old conjurer's trick of forcing a card on you. But Mrs. Seracold's medicine quite definitely contained arsenic. And it is so easy to add arsenic to a bottle of tonic. So easy to add another paragraph to the typewritten letter to the Bishop of Cromer. Oh, quite Childishly simple when, when you come to think of it. You see, the real reason for Christian Gulbranson coming here was the most likely one. It was to do with the Gulbranson Trust. Money, in fact. I think you will find evidence of embezzlement. Embezzlement on a very large scale. <sighs> and that points to only one person. 
Yes, Inspector. Louis Saracold. Louis? I can't believe it. But you see, Ruth, there really wasn't anyone else it could have been. So what exactly happened? It was all over very quickly. Edgar Lawson went to pieces the moment the inspector started to question him. Lewis would probably have done his best to bluff it out, but the poor boy just lost his nerve and ran from the house. There was a policeman posted outside so he couldn't get to the drive, and he headed straight for the lake. There was a full moon so he could just about see what he was doing. A rotten old punt was moored to the landing stage, and he leapt onto it and pushed off. What he imagined he was going to do, I have no idea. And where was Lewis all this time? He was following on with the inspector and the rest of us. He started shouting at Lawson. Edgar! The boat isn't safe! Come back! And just at that moment, the boat went down, and there was the poor boy struggling in the water. But couldn't he swim? Apparently not. And then Lewis jumped in and swam after him. He got to him, but then they got hopelessly tangled up in the reeds. They'll drown. They'll both of them drown. Yes. They are going to drown. And was that the end? Yes. They didn't find the bodies until early this morning. And Carrie Louise, how is she? She looks very frail, but in some strange way, she seems curiously untouched by it all. I was planning to come down this evening. Do you think that would be all right? Yes, Ruth. I know she would very much like to see you. Just imagine the three of us together again for the first time in more than a quarter of a century. You see, Carrie Louise, I was really rather foolish. Foolish, Jane? It seems to me that you've been quite remarkably perceptive. Oh, no. I should never have doubted you from the beginning. But everyone kept on telling me that you didn't live in the real world. I guess that includes me. I said you were an idealist who was a complete sucker for cranks. But in fact, you were never deceived by illusion as the rest of us were. You just couldn't believe anyone could try to poison you. And you were right. You kept on assuring me that Edgar Lawson would never harm Lewis when they were locked in the study together. And again, you were right. But what made you see through the whole thing, Jane? How did you work it out? It was Alex Resterick who made me look at everything from a different angle by showing me that the murder was based on a clever illusion. And then I saw what the trick was. One person pretending to be two. And when he was telling me that he had heard running feet from outside the house, I began to see how it could have been done. But it was the fact that the constable who made the experiment of running to the house and back was puffing and panting that gave me the real clue. You mean that when Lewis opened the door of the study to us, after Edgar had fired the pistol into the wall... He was out of breath. Because he'd been running hard to get back into the study after he had shot Christian. But it was Edgar Lawson who was really the pivot of it all. There was always something not quite right about him that I couldn't put my finger on. All the things he said and did were exactly right for what he was supposed to be. But he himself wasn't real. Because he was actually a normal, if rather nervous, young man trying to play the part of a schizophrenic. And as soon as I realized that, everything fell into place. But what had Lewis done? Was it embezzlement? Oh, 
I'm sorry, Carrie Louise. I shouldn't have asked. It's far too soon. Oh, no, no, Ruth. I want to talk about it. I rang up Dr. Galbraith this afternoon. The Bishop of Cromer? Yes. And it seems that he, too, had had his suspicions about what Lewis was up to. And if Christian hadn't spoken out then, he would have done so. So what had he discovered? Lewis had always had this dream of a, a kind of utopia. He believed that the reason why so many young people reoffended after their release was that they could not resist the pressures and temptations of the world around them. He wanted to take them away from all that, to found a self-supporting community on some remote island where they could begin a completely new life. Rather like the convicts who were transported to Australia. Yes, but to achieve this, he needed really colossal amounts of money. He believed, I think, that the end justified the means. And, of course, he had at his disposal all that he needed. You mean some of the young criminals who had passed through here? The bishop told me that Lewis selected those boys who showed a pronounced criminal intelligence. They were specially trained and placed in key positions in, in banks and major financial concerns. I don't know exactly how it was done, but it seems that under various names and bank accounts and companies, Lewis was in a position to dispose of very considerable amounts of money. And Christian had found out about this. Oh, yes. But he was greatly concerned about the effect that any possible prosecution of Lewis would have upon me. Which was why he wanted to know about your heart, and accidentally gave credence to the story about you being poisoned, which Lewis had concocted to account for Christian's visit. But surely he was taking one hell of a risk, persuading that boy to be his accomplice. Or did he have some kind of hold over this Edgar Lawson? It wasn't exactly a hold. I presume you noticed the likeness, Jane. I noticed it, but I couldn't quite believe it. You knew all along. I guessed. I knew he'd had a brief infatuation for an actress before he met me. I've no doubt that Edgar was Lewis's son. And he gave his life trying to save him. I'm glad it ended that way. People who can be very good can be very bad, too. I always knew that about Lewis, but he loved me very much, and I loved him. Did you ever suspect him? Not until Alex and Ernie were killed. I didn't think that anyone else but Lewis would have dared. And I began to be afraid of what he might do next. I always admired Lewis for his, his goodness. But now I see that goodness isn't enough. You have to be humble as well. That is what I have always admired about you, Carrie Louise. Your humility. Yeah. Oh, but I'm not particularly humble, Jane. Nor really very good. I can only admire goodness in other people. Still the same blue-eyed idealist after all these years. Dear Carrie Louise...
So you have decided to go back to America with your husband. I shall forget all about Stony Gates and all my wild theatrical notions and become a 100% American housewife. <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned from this whole ghastly experience, it's that Wally is a truly marvellous person. I am sure that the two of you will be very happy. You quite put me in mind oh, no, of no, a young... Please don't say it, Miss Marple. I've heard too many of your parallels from St. Mary Mead. They've always got a sting in the tail. You really are a wicked old woman, you know. Jane, we're going for a stroll down to the brook. Are you coming? When I think of you and Aunt Ruth and Grandam all being girls together, I just can't imagine it somehow. No, I don't suppose you can. It was all such a long time ago. And yet... It feels just like yesterday. Coming. In the final part of Agatha Christie's They Do It With Mirrors, Miss Marple was played by June Whitfield. Carrie Louise, Ursula Howells, Ruth Van Rydock, Jill Balkan, Louis Serracold, Peter Howell, Inspector Curry, Keith Barron. Mildred Street, Natasha Pine, Gina Hud, Rebecca Lacey, Walter Hud, Stephen Lucas, Alex Resterick, Nick Waring, Stephen Resterick, Daniel Philpot, Juliet Belliver, Paula Jacobs. They Do It With Mirrors was dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening. <laughs>